welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. On July 28th, Carmen Maria Machado, author of the short story collection Her Body and Other Parties, joined Lighthouse faculty member Alexander Lubins on stage for Inside the Writer's Studio. Carmen Maria Machado's debut short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, was a finalist for the National Book Award and winner of the 2017 Shirley Jackson Award. Her essays, fiction, and criticism have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Granta, and Tin House. Thank you guys for being here and not being at the Underground Music Showcase uh, down on Lower Broadway. This is going to be so much better. So welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio with Carmen Maria Machado. This event, yes, feel free to applaud. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, we're really excited to have Carmen here. Uh, this is part of a two-day event. Tomorrow she will be giving a sold-out craft lecture at Lighthouse um, called Every Story is a Haunted House Story. Um, so I am Laura. I'm a program coordinator at Lighthouse, and I'm going to tell you a little bit, a bit about Lighthouse, and then I'll introduce Alexander Lumens. Uh, Lumens will introduce Carmen. She's going to read, and then it will be the onstage interview. First of all, I want to thank Highlands Church and the Holiday Theater for providing this amazing venue. This is so cool. Uh, Tattered Cover is here selling books. <laughs> They're waving back there. Hey, Tattered. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the Writer's Studio is made possible in part by the Bonfee Stanton Foundation, SCFD, Colorado Creative Industries, the NEA, Artworks, and all of our author series sponsors. Um, so you all should have received a green ribbon in your program. Um, here's the deal with the ribbons. If you post a photo of yourself wearing the ribbon and tag Lighthouse on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, you'll be entered to win a signed copy of Carmen's book. And you'll want to do that by midnight tonight. So I have some fun facts for you about the Writer's Studio. Carmen is our very first millennial guest. <laughs> In fact, I'm pretty sure this is Lighthouse's first all-millennial event. Um, we were taken over. <laughs> this writer's studio marks uh, the program's 10th year. Adam Johnson is also going to be coming this year in December. See the back of your program for details on that. Six studio guests have won MacArthur Genius Grants. 19 out of 25 have received Guggenheim Fellowships. Six have had works adapted or currently in production for TV and film, including, I believe, Carmen. Yeah. And this is our very first summer writer's studio, um, in which we're hoping to highlight an author whose career we're excited to follow. So thank you guys for experimenting with us on this. And in case you didn't know, Lighthouse is a 501c3 nonprofit. It's a community for storytellers and story seekers. Uh, I also want to thank our volunteers, our staff, our students, donors, and instructors. If you want to get involved, you can visit lighthousewriters.org. And you can attend our upcoming casino night fundraiser on August 17th, complete with an online auction to lots of writers retreats around the world. 
Tickets are available in the lobby. So Alexander Lumens has been an instructor for Lighthouse since 2013. He's known around the office as a bit of a globetrotter. He's been awarded fellowships to the Arctic Circle, McDowell, Yaddo, VCCA, Brush Creek, Blue Mountain Center, and Norton Island. And he's received many awards, including the Wabash, Gulf Coast, and Barry Hanna Fiction Prizes. His writing appears widely, uh, including in the Paris Review, Guarnica, and Glimmer Train. But, there are really only three things you need to know about lumens. <laughs> um, slide. <laughs> One, his aesthetic aligns with the tragicomics and the surrealists, the David Cronenbergs and the Margaret Atwoods of the world. He's a motivated and generous teacher. I don't know why it says wet chihuahuas in the background there, but maybe he can tell you at some point. Um, and as captured over the last five years by our photographer, Amanda Tipton. Hey, Amanda. Uh, he's skilled in the art of hand gestures. Um, feel free to try and follow along if you want. They get pretty crazy. Um, I really like this one, in which he is blowing people's minds. And then he's sort of sheepish in this one, but he recovers, so don't worry. Um, my all-time favorite is this one. It's so complicated. I call it the epic mansplain. Sorry, Lumens. <laughs> um, he likes to do the ball. I think that's a dance move, actually. Um, and the ball has a long history. This is Talk to the Hand. You guys all know this one. This is from 2015. Uh, the ball, again, in its infancy in 2013 uh, when Lumens won the poker party at Lighthouse. All right, I'll stop picking on him. Uh, please join me in welcoming tonight's interviewer, Alexander Lumens. That's amazing. Can you hear me? Cool. It looks like I'm praising some lord in every one of those photos. Um, cool. Well, thank you to Lighthouse for having this entire event, for bringing Carmen here, for just being a community that I've always treasured as a part of my life in Denver. Um, thank you particularly to Andrew and Mike for just what they do for this community in general. I first met Carmen Maria Machado in Baton Rouge, where we were both visiting writers at a festival. While there, she gave a reading of a new story called Eight Bites. She ate boiled crawfish with a mastery that impressed the locals. And one night, she wore a blazer covered in stars that foretold the kind of writer she would soon become one that others look up to. A few years later, when I read her short story, The Resident, I noticed some strange parallels between its narrative and my life at the time. 
The Resident is about a writer at an unsettling artist residency in New England uh, in the woods. I, too, was at a Woodland artist residency. And I, too, was unsettled. Mostly because I just learned I was in the exact county where they'd filmed Deliverance. <laughs> but I thought, what could go wrong reading this story right now in my life? I finished the resident that same night, and it so deeply affected me immediately that later in the night, when the power cut out, I quickly found myself driving in slippers out of the full moonlit valley, bringing with me only a large kitchen knife <laughs> and a dying headlamp and I was expecting fast-moving zombies to suddenly be closer than they may appear. <laughs> when I looked in the rearview mirror, however, I saw instead I had become the resident. What I'm trying to say is that Machado's debut collection, Her Body and Other Parties, does more than insert itself under the skin. It performs an alchemy on the brain. In this way, the real world is revealed to contain the magical and dangerous properties of her created ones. And others agree. Since its publication last year, Her Body and Other Parties has been killing it. It was a finalist for the National Book Award, and just on July 15th, it won the Shirley Jackson Award. And there's a huge list of other awards available out there that I can't name, because um, I, I would lose time. Uh, in other words, the secret is out. Her collection has reached such heights in part because it bends genres like horror and fairy tale around the difficult, the difficult realities of women's lives. These risk-taking stories challenge the patriarchal status quo and dramatically render our cracking world through the lenses of the fantastic and the queer. Likewise, Machado's work also brings the hope. In her story, Mothers, the narrator says, I believe in a world where impossible things can happen, where love can outstrip brutality. Instead of slapping band-aids on cultural fissures and calling them cured, Machado cracks them open further she does this so that we might better appraise the world's rawest contents and then recraft this brutal reality as it should be, full of possibility, full of magic. Please welcome Carmen Maria Machado. Oh, that was so nice. <laughs> that was really nice. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much, Lumens. That was so beautiful. I'm a little, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna cry, but I, I wanna cry. Um, thank you so much for having me here in beautiful Denver, where I've never been before. Um, it's amazing to see the community that, has, that is Lighthouse. Um, in Philly, we actually, which is where I live, we have a very nascent 
similar like literary organization that just started this year, and I'm really excited to see it grow into something as incredible as this, so yeah. Um, I am gonna be reading a story that is not from the collection. It um, was published in Tin House last summer, um, and it's, speaking of the Shirley Jackson Award, um, Shirley Jackson is a, large, is a huge influence of mine, and this is a story that I wrote after thinking very deeply about a story of Shirley Jackson's called The Tooth, which if you have not read it, you must. It is perfect. This imperfect story <laughs> that is not as perfect as Shirley's is called Blur. En route to visit my girlfriend in Indiana, I pull over at a rest stop in Illinois to wash my face. It is not my first mistake of the day, but it is the biggest. The bathroom is full of people. I see them before I place my glasses on the sink. I realize I am flinching after my body is already tight with worry. She will be enraged if I am late again. Children with juice-stained mouths are at the sink on either side of me. A middle-aged woman with a deflated handbag scolds them. They scream, she screams, all of it rising above the rush of the tap. The water smells vaguely, vaguely sulfurous like the fountain of youth. I hear the rapid escalation and de-escalation of the hand dryers, and when the family evacuates the bathroom, it aches with the relief of emptiness. I press my hand to my forehead, my cheeks, my jaw. I breathe deeply. Face dripping over the sink, I reach for my glasses. My fingers scrabble over porcelain and close over nothing. I wipe the loose water from my skin and lean in toward my reflection, my nose nearly touching the mirror, pulled and bluish like a fish on the verge of floating. I continue to grope around for the glasses that are no longer there. I drop to my knees and feel nothing, not even the slapstick crunch of glass and wire beneath an unlucky hand. I run my hands along the walls, more tile, swinging door, a glass case that is covering a map of the state, vending machines, doors. I follow the sound of children's voices, the digital jangle of their video game. Excuse me, I say to a woman's shape. Can I help you, she asks. There is a game, there is a game over chirrup from the direction of the kids, a yelp of disappointment. My glasses, I say. I think one of your children took my glasses. They were on the sink in the ladies. Her voice is flat. They wouldn't do that. I have gone about this all wrong. I have accused when I should have asked for help. Please help me, I say. I can't see anything. Please ask the children. Good luck, she says in a clipped voice. My guy keeps dying, mom, one of them shrieks as a van door slams shut. I return to the Welcome Center. It's an overcast day, so the building is hard to distinguish from the sky. Solo 9 is still overhead, but for the first time in ages, I can't see it. In the bathroom, I touch everything. I scoot over the tiles on my knees. I feel the crevices, trying not to think about, it, think about any of it too hard. No spare pair, 
no contacts. She warned me not to be late, and not only am I going to be late, I am trapped along an interstate with no way to continue my journey. I could call her, tell her what happened, as per her rule of keeping her informed, but the idea makes my stomach blossom with anxiety. Should I call the police? Is this a police matter? At least then the officer could explain the situation to her. She could not accuse the police of lying to her. She certainly wouldn't yell at them. Here is Officer Harris, I could tell her, and I will let him tell you about this comedy of errors. I sit against the wall and close my eyes. My floaters drift against my lids. The door opens. Someone comes in, pausing long enough to tell me that she is curious about me, but doesn't want to be rude. She leaves me for a stall and pees for a long time, hard and decisive, like a horse, <laughs> or like she's been holding it for a long distance. She flushes, washes her hands at the sink furthest from me. Then, are you all right? This is very embarrassing, I tell her. I've misplaced my glasses. I think they're here somewhere. Oh, she says, oh, you poor dear, let me help you look. Where were they? On the edge of the sink, I say. She drifts like a peach phantom up and down the row, humming a song to herself. She does not pause anywhere, and before she talks, I know what she's going to say. I'm so sorry, she says. There's nothing here, I've gone to every sink. The heat on my face is tears, but I don't know it until she says, don't cry, can I call someone for you? I imagine it, the call. The friendly woman handing me the phone and my girlfriend's voice on the other end, acidic with suspicion. Who is that? Who's calling me? Where are you? I told you not to be, no, no, I say. I'm fine, thank you for your help. She awkwardly touches my shoulder. I can hear the rustle of her leaning over, the dry hiss of a delicate chain striking synthetic fabric of her blouse. She has the mushroomy smell of a bra removed after a long day. I hope your afternoon gets better. I believe it will. Do you pray? I think it will only get worse from here, to be honest, I say. <laughs> and no, I don't pray. I'll pray for you, she says, better than a phone call even. The door slams. Someone else will be along presently, I think. I dig into my pocket and locate a loose, smell, a, a loose pill, small as punctuation. I take the Xanax. When I am feeling calmer, I will have someone call her for me. I take another Xanax. A man, preferably, though I will have to leave the bathroom for that to happen. I take a third Xanax. Outside the welcome center, I feel along the wall and sit on a bench. The sun has come out. The highway traffic sounds both calamitous and purposeful, as though everyone is escaping an apocalyptic event. I could be sitting here as a wall of fire creeps toward me, or a horde of zombies. Every time a large truck rumbles by, the bench shivers beneath my thighs. My phone is in my purse. My purse is in my car. I should just get my phone and call her and get it over with. I don't move. The traffic travels along the highway like a droning procession of insects, sunlight glinting off a vehicle's chassises. Then a single car breaks away, moving toward me like a gleaming thread fraying from a rope. Music throbs from the car before it crunches to a stop and the door opens. 
The footsteps suggest a long stride, and the figure moves past me in a beat of color. The owner of them does not angle toward the bathroom, but to the vending machines. There is a clink of coins, a metallic hum, the crinkle crash of a candy bar being dropped. The footsteps start up again and stop directly in front of me. The owner is tall and dressed in something blue and structured like a suit. Hello, a voice says, a man's voice, I think, the best possible development. She would never accuse me of sleeping with a man. Hello, I say. You need help, he says. Yes, I say, but how do you, you're sitting here looking at nothing, he says, or everything, but probably nothing. I've lost my glasses, I say. I've lost my glasses and I can't drive without them. My vision is very poor. The bench creaks a little as he sits down next to me. He presses something pillowy but with a firm center into my hand and I bring it very close to my face, a Milky Way midnight. I don't eat candy, I say. You should eat it anyway, he says. Someone walks towards us and goes into the bathroom. I should ask her about the glasses I am thinking even as she walks back out and gets into her car. When she pulls away, I sigh. Where were you going, he asks. To Indiana, I say, to visit my girlfriend. Have you called her to tell her you'll be delayed? I'm afraid, I admitted. Afraid of what? Of what she'll say. What will she say? Have a bite. She'll yell at me for being late, for losing my glasses. Evidence. Evidence of what? Of not loving her properly. The chocolate stings my throat. It is sweeter than anything I've eaten in years. I swallow without chewing well. There is the promise of a choke, but it passes, though the painful lump of nougat reminds me all the way down. <laughs> you could walk to her, he suggests. Walk from here? Sure. That's proof you love her if you come toward her on your hands and knees. <laughs> you want me to walk on my hands and knees? It's just an expression, he says, but he doesn't sound like he means it. The man in blue takes my hand. His is soft and warm and a little damp, as if he's just finished washing the dishes. We stand, and the wrapper drops from my fingers. We go down the sidewalk, past the dog-walking patch and the picnic tables and the fragrant trash cans, past my car, which sits obediently where I left it. We drop off the sidewalk and onto the pavement. He walks me along the, ramp to the, the entrance ramp to the interstate. I don't think we're allowed to do this, I say. I think the police will stop us. <laughs> he does not answer. From the strip of gray stretching out before me, I can tell he is guiding me down the shoulder. A car drives by with its window down, and I hear fluttering ribbons of sound, top 40, shredded by speed. The autumn trees that line the highway are backlit by the sun, bokeh bright and pixelated. The shadows are harder to read, murky, indistinct. The feathery tips of tall grasses scrape dryly against my jeans. We are walking in the gravel before I remember that I left my phone behind, in my purse, in my car. I pull back a little, but his hand is firm, and we continue to move forward. This feels like a dream, and that I always go blind in dreams. I both know and don't know what's around me. I perceive it, but can't see it precisely, sense it, but could never describe it. 
Also, something always follows around me as I make my way, follows me as I make my way around the dreamscape, something stepping after me in the dark. Except no one is following me now. The man in the suit and I are walking to the future together. This will be a good story, I say, a good story to tell one day. If he agrees, he does not say. One recent morning, I woke up with something in my right eye, a tiny cluster of shapes that, after a millisecond's pause, followed the direction of my gaze. It looked, in turn, like the contents of a Petri dish in a news special about Ebola, then like a tick scuttling just out of reach of my peripheral vision. Before I made an appointment to do something about it, another one appeared in the opposite eye. I drove to my longtime doctor, certain I was on the cusp of losing my vision blotch by tiny blotch. Is it solo nine? I asked him, sitting in the chair. Did I look at it too long? His office had a plastic model of an eye on a filing cabinet with the name of a prescription drug printed across the base. He lifted the eye to show me, running his finger along the cord of nerves to swipe away a layer of dust. He demonstrated where the floaters lived and explained what they were, the shadows of tiny desiccated strands of the eye's vitreous humor that clung to each other like survivors of a shipwreck in a wide and lonely sea. You're a bit young to have them, he confessed. They're, the worse someone's vision is, the more likely they are to get them earlier in life. But they're inevitable floaters. Everyone gets them, eventually. So there's nothing I can do about them. I just have to think that I'm seeing bugs for the rest of my life. The Romans actually called them flying flies, he said. But in Latin, of course, whatever's Latin for flying flies. Isn't that funny, flying flies, like there's any other kind? Anyway, at some point your brain will adjust to their presence and you'll stop noticing them. But I could not. As I looked out into the bright day or stared at my computer screen, the shadows cast by the dead jelly of my eye continued to flit and maybe think that insects were darting past me. I was constantly jerking my head to the side to avoid them as though I were cowering before a raised hand. I'm thirsty, I tell the man in blue. We've been walking for what feels like hours and I can no longer see the outline of the rest stop in the blur behind us. He sits down in the weeds and the wildflowers and draws me into his lap as if I were an infant and tilts the ridged bottle, the ridged mouth of bottled water to my lips. I take long pulls but never feel quite sated. In the air I smell the faint burning of rubber, the hot grease of fast food, and a fresh breezy core, nature persisting through everything mankind can throw at her. Someone tosses litter from a passing car and whatever it is clatters down the embankment near us. I release the bottle and it burbles and squeals. Sometimes I say, startling myself, she grabs my arm hard. It sounds so minor and I try to explain. There's no love behind that touch and it's the worst thing. From the tree line, something yelps in pain and falls silent. Do you have a phone, I continue. She told me to call her if I was going to be delayed, but then she also told me not to be delayed at all and I don't know if she'll remember which instruction is more pressing. Sometimes she tells me that she hates me, that she's always hated me, and then the next day she says she's never said that. Is it possible to do terrible things and not remember them? Do you think something is wrong with her? Do you think she's sick? In any case, I think we should call her. He doesn't say anything. I feel soothed by my plan for a few breaths before a needle of anxiety plunges through my sternum. 
Even if he were to call, I'd have that same problem. Even though I have never been interested in men, not even a little, she very well could accuse me of cheating on her and changing sides, betrayal squared. Never mind, I say. I press my face into his suit jacket, which smells like a campfire. He rocks me. The cars whiz by like bees. Once in the city of her birth, before the arrival of Solo 9, but after the dream I'd had about it, my girlfriend became angry at my exhaustion and abandoned me at a carnival at dusk. I don't want you here, you should leave, she said, and disappeared into a crowd of people. I sat down in my suitcase and pulled out my phone, but there was no one to call, so I opened my book and read by the flickering lights of a nearby ride, the Matterhorn, which tooted a vaguely Bavarian song as it swung screaming patrons in an elliptical orbit. As I strained to decipher the text, I was reminded that when I was a child, my doctor told me that the eye my eyes were bad because I had read so much beneath my blankets by the beam of a dying flashlight. I had cried because I loved to read, and I thought he was telling me to stop. She found me there, hunched over unread pages. She was furious I hadn't come to find her. As I dragged my suitcase through the dust and watched the back of her head, I remember his response. All I'm saying, he said, raising his voice above my tears, is that if you keep reading by dim light, your eyes will fail you, and there'll be no one to blame but yourself. I tried to listen. I really did. But there are some things you just can't help doing. Anything can happen on the road. That's what my dad always said, the reason he insisted on buying me a jack and lug nut multi-tool and a tiny red backpack full of army rations and a set of flashing battery-operated flares for emergencies. Maybe if I'd been thinking straight the first time it all went sideways, I would have laid myself down on the dust with a circle of those lights around me, a blinking fairy ring that no one dared step inside, lest it make them invisible too. The man in blue laughs. Well, not laughs precisely, it's more of a chuckle. I didn't know that anyone did that, actually chuckled, but he does, and my head taps against his chest with every pulse of sound, as if I'm his heartbeat and he's thinking about someone he loves. I don't know what'll happen if I keep following him. I do know what'll happen if I show up at her doorstep. My dad also used to say, better the devil you know than the devil you don't, but he didn't understand what not knowing, that not knowing always leaves room for hope. We stand and keep walking. With every step, something in my cardigan pocket knocks against my hip, and I draw out a tangle of keys. When I squeeze them, their teeth bite, like the devil I know. I lean back and hurl them towards the tree line. I don't hear them land, but a pocket of birds bursts into the sky as though a bomb has gone off. The man in blue murmurs something low. What, I say? Have you heard the story, he said, of the woman who saw nothing? Ha, huh, I say, is that my story? No, he says, as if the joke is lost on him. Tell me the story of the woman who saw nothing, I say. There once was a woman who had the same nightmare every night, that a monster slept next to her, purring, burbling blood. The monster would sometimes wake and give her gifts, stars, pearls, the pith of tangerines, and she tucked them under her pillow. When she woke up, she went about her day, but every night she returned to sleep and thus to the monster's side. One night, she dreamt that she handed the monster the eyes straight out of her own head. 
the monster put them in a jar. Every night after that, she arrived in her dream with new eyes and handed them over just like the others. Soon the jar was full of them, round and unblinking as jawbreakers. And with her eyes so captured, like a selkie without her skin, the woman knew she had no way of leaving. Upon waking, she'd wondered why she'd, why she'd given them over, but she never had an answer. It always just seemed to make sense. The candy bar lurches against the base of my esophagus. What did the monster look like? Oh, the monster was terrifying. It had claws sharp as time and teeth filed to bony points. It had the eyes of an octopus and the head of a queen and the belly of a bear and an albatross where its heart should have been. When enraged, it would make a horrific screaming sound that caused the house around them to tremble. And then I can feel it, the foundation shuddering beneath the monster, a shook, shook, shook like an earthquake. I feel the heat of its breath. And then, he said, everything would smell like metal and burned hair and fear. And yes, it does. It does smell that way. The pavement trembles underneath my feet. I gasp and pull, and his grip tightens. Let's go down into the ditch, I say. Wait for it to pass. No, his voice is calm. Stay right here. He guides my body until I am standing on the edge of the shoulder. He leans into my hair and drops a whisper in my ear. Shh. The trembling grows more agitated. I whimper. You have to trust me, he said. I'm the only one that's here. You have to trust me. There's no one else to trust. Please let me go, I say. My ears pop from the force of the 18-wheeler that screams past us, blasting its horn. I smell the rank sweetness of manure and hay, and I know it's in the back of that truck, bristling, terrified pigs being carried to their deaths. The spray of gravel and dirt stings my face. I begin to weep. Stop, he says, stop, sweet girl, don't cry. I can't help it, I say. But you can, he says, you can help it. You know you can. I told you to trust me. Why are you crying? Because I don't think I'll ever see the world right again, and I also don't think the world will ever be right again. But glasses can be replaced. I will deliver you to your girlfriend, and she will deliver you home, he says. All will be right. I cannot imagine her driving me back, but I suddenly have an image of being bundled, sightless, onto a plane, of looking out the plane's window and seeing nothing but loose snarls of blue and white and brown. Will they tow my little car, I wonder? After a few days, will they take her away? Put her into a lot until she is deemed abandoned, where she'll be shipped off to a more responsible owner? You never told me the end of the story, I said, as I kick off my shoes, of the girl who saw nothing. Oh, he says, yes, the girl and the monster got married. The end. Cold strains through my sweater. The light is getting gold and thin, as if we are drifting to the upper level of the atmosphere where Solo 9 waits for all of us, but especially for me. The sun is setting, I say, earlier and earlier these days. Yes, he says, but we need to keep going. Indiana's not coming to us, it has roots. You are the movable object. I tilt my head back and open my eyes as wide as they will go. Step to your right, he says, there's a deer. I tilt my head down, eyes watering, and see the shape of it. The broken body is massive, corkscrewed, utterly still. 
We drop down the side of the embankment, and my face is level with its opened gut, the dark, unknowable silhouettes of its organs, the aluminum bite of blood, the rancid heat of organic matter turning. I hear the titter of flies. They flutter past my face like animated dust, and I cough. I love her, but she makes me afraid, I say. Maybe she loves you because she makes you afraid, he says. The buzzing fades. He rises up to the shoulder and brings me along with him. The pavement feels like damp cornstarch, the damp cornstarch sand that lives beneath the tide, solid unless you stand on it for too long. I think about the miles in front of me. It feels impossible, and yet isn't that love? an impossible thing taken on inch by inch. It's sort of beautiful when you think about it, I say to him, walking along the road to her. It's like a movie. We're gonna get to her and you can explain what happened. She's gonna be so happy that I'm there and she'll listen to you, I know it. Silence. A breeze strokes my open palm. I lift it to my face, cupping the bright chill of my cheekbone and then turn back and forth along the empty highway. Somewhere in the distance, a car flips on its headlights, and then another, and then another, like street lamps going on at dusk. I keep walking as the light drains from the sky. Within minutes, the whole world has closed its eyes on me. Thank you. amazing. <laughs> um, there are so many things that that story alone makes me want to ask about. <laughs> um, you could start there if you wanted. <laughs> at, at one point I had 90 questions. I went How down. long do you guys have? Yeah. You have, are you? Dan, lock the door. <laughs> um, but I think maybe a, a good place to start is, I mean, congratulations on everything. <laughs> Thank you. And did you ever think at any point in your life that you'd reach like, this level of success that you would have, like, that you dreamed maybe as a, as a kid or at some point oh, when no. you were first writing? I don't think I even still quite understand it or get it or think it's happening. <laughs> There's this weird, like, disconnect. Um, even when the book was about to come out, you know, I mean, they were, like, these weird, queer, genre-bending short stories. That's, like, not a genre that, like, sells you know, bajillions of copies. I was like, yeah, you know, if I make my by Vance, I'll, I'll be really happy. Um, and then things started happening and kept happening. <laughs> I didn't really know what to make of it. Um, so yeah, no, I, I mean, as a kid, I wanted to write, but I don't think I ever could have imagined it looking this way, so. What, I guess as, if you started writing as a kid, what's something that you remember writing from that, like, are you rooting around era. for that one particular story? No, I, I know several <laughs> stories, but I'm, um, curious, I'm curious about like where you, I don't know, where your earliest ideas about storytelling and like what you were interested in as like subject matter. Sure, so as a kid I read, I loved like really dark, I loved like Shel Silverstein, Roald Dahl, like you know, those sort of like dark, ironic, like children's writers. Um, 
and I, and I imitated them a lot. So the, what I thought you were <laughs> asking about was that the, the only story, so I would write little books, my father's stationery, and I would staple it together, and then I would like, show my parents. And the one that, only one that I have any memory of is a, is a book I wrote called The Biggest Turkey Can't Find the Farm. And it's about a turkey who is lost, and so he's sort of wandering around, and he's like, he goes to a hotel, and he goes to a zoo, he's kind of all over the place. And then he's like, is, is, this, is this the farm? And it's never the farm. And then finally, then he gets to the farm, and he's like, yay, I'm home. And then you turn the last page, and it's like a roast turkey on a platter. <laughs> <laughs> and it just said, I wish I did not come here. And my mother was horrified, obviously. <laughs> Um, and like, I did not, I mean, it was very precocious and adorable. I clearly had gotten that from something. Like, I, I'm sure I read some Shel Silverstein poem or some, some children's book that had kind of like that sort of dark, kind of ironic turn at the end. And I was just imitating what I was, what I was reading. Um, but yeah, so I really loved just like weird, and it was, weird, and it was funny because I was also like a very nervous, anxious, and fearful child. So I, by all, I should not have been drawn to these things, but I liked being scared. I liked being unsettled. I liked being upset. And yeah, she's like, it's just sort of me in a nutshell. <laughs> like I was like, I'm like terrified and anxious and stressed out and also want to like provoke myself into some kind of reaction, so. And I, I mean, just sitting there listening to that particular story, I felt all of those things of like haunting and also levels of hope at the same time. And I mean, I think the fact that you are carrying the things that are affecting you into the audience and into the reader is, is so interesting and powerful, um, particularly with like fear as, as a topic. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, and this isn't all my stories, but a lot of stories start from a place of like what, like what is like a worst case scenario that I can imagine, which is like, I'm sure I've, this is a very healthy way of approaching the world. It's like, how can this, how can this be the worst thing ever? Um, and I actually have had this a lifelong anxiety, so I'm, I ha wear very strong prescription glasses. Without them, I can't see anything. and. There was, has anybody here seen the, the Mummy with like Brendan Fraser? Okay, so I love that movie as a kid, and there's this part of the Mummy, and I'm, spo I'm gonna spoil it for you, but you know what? It's been out for a long time, so I don't feel bad for you. Um, and there's a scene where like the one guy with glasses, people like you guys know you, so they're like you know what I'm saying. Uh, he gets bumped and like his glasses fall off his face, and someone steps on them, so he doesn't have his glasses, and then like the others run away, and he's like kind of walking through the the the. I guess pyramid or wherever the, wherever the tomb that he's in, and, and he can't see anything, but he can hear things, and there's just like this blur, like can't, it's just like blurry, like he can't, because he can't see anything, and then of course the mummy gets him. Um, and that scene scared the bejesus out of me, more than any other scene in the movie, and I realized that I had this anxiety about, for me, sight, and like having my sight taken away from me, um, and one time I was on a road trip, went to the bathroom in a, in a rest stop, leaned over to wash my face and thought to myself, wouldn't it be terrible if my glasses just disappeared right now because I would be trapped here on, <laughs> in this, on this rest stop. Luckily, they did not disappear, but that sort of idea just followed me. And then at some point, I, I sort of realized that I had thought. And I also developed really bad floaters in my, in my eye. And I was like, I have like one way to story about sight and sight being sort of taken away. And that was sort of where that story came from. So yeah, again, like an example of like me being really afraid of something and then trying to sort of deconstruct it somehow in a way that's satisfying. Do you think that, that then that sort of absolves you of the fear? Or do you feel like it no. just, it just, it gets 
No, it does not absolve people of fear in any way. Uh, if they did, that would be very handy, but no, no, it, it doesn't. It probably makes it worse, actually. But, but then I, at least I feel like I've done something about it, besides just quaking in my boots. So. And I think that can sort of build up into a larger question about like, the, your use of horror as, as a genre in your work. And, you know, you definitely play in multiple genres. I mean, again, I had like a list of 90 genres <laughs> that you might have uh, worked in. And I think horror is a particularly interesting one because it's, it has sort of, it's been like relegated outside of maybe like literary work and it's sort of been mm -hmm. short shrifted in some form or fashion. And, like, why, why did horror appeal to you, not just as its own genre, but maybe like bringing that in to... Sure. To like, the, uh, like a, not just straight horror. I mean, I think, I think some kinds of horror have sort of existed outside of like what you might call like the literary culture, but like Shirley Jackson was always a respected literary writer who also wrote horror. Um, and you know, and then there are sort of there are writers who sort of exist kind of all over the spectrum in terms of like where they what communities they belonged to and what kind of where they were publishing and stuff like that. Um, but I'm really interested in horror because for me, a it's a way of sort of examining fears and anxieties for ob for obvious reasons. Um, I also think horror is very interesting because it you know when we think about like horror has has the potential to be incredibly transgressive. Now it often isn't. Like people you know we sort of joke about like tropes like. La the last girl trope or like that sort of trope of like, you know, if there's like one black character, like they're gonna be the first to die, right? So there's like these ways in which horror can be very regressive and that, you know, it's sort of hitting these, hitting these tropes or hitting these spaces. But then it also, there's all this room for writers to subvert it. So like a really good example is Victor Laval, who is a writer who um, is very, who's a black writer who's very interested in Lovecraft and Lovecraft was like famously horrifically racist. And so Victor Laval wrote his own book where he sort of tackled like, like horror and like the black body and also Lovecraft particularly, um, this like weird like criticism slash love letter to Lovecraft, like their complicated relationship. Um, so yeah, so I feel like horror just has so much potential and so much space. And I also really am drawn to work. An interview once said, said to me that he called it work that changes your temperature and that like really spoke to me and I just use it now as if it's my own and, but I stole it from him. But um, I like work that changes my temperature and like sometimes I'll read a book and be like, okay, and like, I don't feel like my temperature has changed. Like, I'm like, that was a book with words, and I know what it's about, but like, I've reached the end and I have no feelings, and then there are books that just like, unmake me, and they're not always horror, but like, horror like, hits these like, you know, adrenaline spots in my body, and it like, really just, there's a pleasure that I take in the genre, and yeah, and I don't know, I just, and I think about horror a lot, so like, for those of you who will attend tomorrow, I'm really into, I'm like super into haunted houses right now. I've been thinking about them nonstop for like two years uh, for reasons I don't understand. Um, and yeah, and, and for me, like the, the, that particular subgenre has like a lot of um, potential space for subversion and also space for um, thinking about horror or thinking about like fiction as a sort of larger, like as a larger thing. Um, and I feel like horror has a lot to offer uh, other kinds of fiction, like other genres of fiction. So then, in terms of playing with genre and you know, bending genres and subverting them, or you know, pulling in elements from them, uh, in, you know, perhaps in multiple genres in a single story, do you feel a genre is a, a freeing thing for you, or does it present in interesting disadvantages in terms of storytelling? Yeah, yeah, I don't feel limited by genre, and I, I feel like, yeah, there, there's different ways to think about genre, and also I should, I should add just for definition of terms, like. 
people sort of argue about what even that means. Like, what, is it, what does it mean to, for a thing to be in a genre? And like, for me, genre is a set of world building tools. So it's like, what, do you, what can you, the reader, expect from this world? And it ha like, is this science fiction? Is it like near future? Is it far future? Is it um, high fantasy? Is it liminal fantasy? Is it portal fantasy? Like, there's like all these different sort of, these ideas of genre, right? Um, and then things like literary fiction is like a style. So it's like a certain thinking about um, language and psychology and things like that. Um, and I just, your question just went right out of my head as I was like on my little tiny soapbox, uh, the tiniest soapbox. Just, just genre. <laughs> just genre. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, oh right, oh do I feel limited? But I know, so for me, what I find so exciting is like, I'll you know, watch something or read something and immediately I'm like, I wanna try that. And I'm really curious how to like take these tropes or these ideas and subvert them. So I'm also really interested in possession right now and I, I really like will watch, like I read books about possession and I've watched movies about possession and think a lot about like what those narratives say about like, you know, sexuality and like the body and the female body and religion and like all these are sort of really interesting things. Um, so no, so for me they don't feel limiting at all because I feel like a, there's no like governing body of like long-robed people who are like you can only do these things and these things, and like if you do anything else, you're you know you're fired from being a writer. I'm allowed to do whatever I can just do whatever I want, and no one has stopped me, so I just keep going. Um, and so yes, yeah, so, no, I find it very freeing, and like I love to use form and genre as like these like stepping points where I can sort of like land on them and then like, kind of launch off in whatever direction I want, um, and it's a real pleasure to do that. So. I mean, just just the genre. I think the things that you just brought up, uh, dealing with sexuality, gender, you know, and using using genre to approach those topics, mm -hmm. I think is, some, is something that I think a lot of people, probably in this audience, are are picking up on as as being like interesting and new. And did you feel like it was territory that had been plumbed before? Like, were there other writers that had like given you permission to sort of like give this work and not in a uh, not in like an authoritative way, but more mm -hmm. like you read these writers and you're like, oh, you can do that. Oh yeah, I mean that was, you know, when I was, when I first started writing, well not when I first started writing, when I first started writing sort of as an adult post-college, thinking about going to grad school, I, I, my, I wasn't a liter, like I didn't study literature in college, I was a photography major, and so like I didn't have like a sort of traditional literary education. And so my reading, what I read was very, like I read a lot, but it was like weird just dives into certain subgenres or like certain authors, but then there were like sort of like blank spaces in my sort of just stuff that I had read. I remember getting to grad school and I would write these, I was writing these truly dreadful stories, these really like, Boring. I won't even tell. I don't want to tell you the plot. I'm too embarrassed. But like, um, and I remember my first semester, um, all my <laughs> my classmates who are now all dear friends of mine were sort of like very gently trying to explain to me like, this is really boring. But there's like moments in the and like a friend of mine said to me like, look, like most of this is like pretty forgettable and pretty generic. Like your sentences are good, but like what's happening here is not interesting. And you seem bored by your own writing. Like you don't seem interested in like the stuff that you're putting on the page. But there was this moment in the story, this otherwise very tedious story, where death appears to a woman and speaks to her, and he was like, this is literally where the story comes alive, this one scene. Everything else is like totally forgettable. And some of my friends were like, so what you should be reading like Kelly Link, Karen Russell, Helena Yemi, Shirley Jackson, Angela Carter, you know, and, and you know, George Saunders, and were just like sort of like giving me this like reading list of people that I had never read before. And then I just devoured all those writers. And then the next semester, I wrote Difficult to Party, which is the last story in the collection, which was the first story that I wrote that was sort of in 
this new voice that I had sort of figured out. And I realized that I, I wanted to think about things about like gender and sexuality, but also use these tools of genre and use, and because and also a lot of those writers, like some of those writers do write in certain genres, but like Kelly Link, for example, is this like, if you haven't read her, you absolutely must. She's like one of our greatest living American writers. Not to be too hyperbolic, but I love her. Um, I have a quote of her tattooed on my arm. It's like a whole thing. But um, she's one of those writers who like, in, and back in like the 90s, she was just like, again, like taking from just every, you know, she just was like, I want that, I want that, I want that. And we read these like incredible, completely unclassifiable stories that like still like just, she had their imitators of her, but she like created her own like, subgenre of like liminal fantasy basically. Um, and it was really amazing to read that and be like, you, there are no rules. Like I can do anything I want. And then I was, and then I, and then I did, did, did it. did that. I did that thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm gonna do the thing and quote you back to you. Oh no, okay. In another, <laughs> uh, in another interview, I mean, just bringing up, you um, used the word liminal and in another interview, you said that you're interested in the space of the liminal, mm -hmm. and I really wanted to just ask more about that. Like, what do you like? What does that space represent to you, and why is why is that interesting? Um, so the nature of like liminality, right, where you're sort of not like the threshold, like you're not in one thing or not in the other. You sort of exist in this space. It speaks to me on like multiple levels. Like, it speaks to me in terms of sexuality, in terms of gender, um, like thinking about my sort of space, like as a, for example, as like a woman in like, in like society and in culture, um, and that nebulous like role and how I sort of feel one way or feel the other. I mean, like also like I'm queer and like I've dated men, I've dated women, and I feel like that, that my relationship with like my identity and the way that I sort of oriented myself towards people and towards, and like sort of how I presented myself as a person changes. Um, and then I'm just really, yeah, I'm just really interested in that sort of like interstitial space. Like what does it mean to be like not quite one thing and not quite the other? Also like, I am like a person of color who more, who more or less looks white. And so like that's also like an interesting, weird sort of middle space that you, that you exist in where it's like you, you present as one thing, you are another thing. It's just, there's no clear narrative. And I'm really interested in just like sort of messing around in that space um, and exploring that space. And I think, and also I think that like all marginalized people to some degree experience liminality as like a state of being because like, you know, if you are a person who like, you have been sort of devalued in a public space because of your identity, you know what it's like for your humanity to be like a little bit forfeit and to be like in this weird sort of middle space that like isn't quite what you would expect it to be. Um, and I think that's like a really natural state. So for me, that's just like an interesting like little mud puddle that I just enjoy <laughs> like splashing around in because it's, it's just like what's interesting to me as a, as a thinker and, and as a writer. Um, so I'm drawn to it sort of in every iteration, including in genre, which like, and then, you know, in genre, I can, you know, the idea of like just taking what you want from categories of, of fiction um, or like reading and then like being like, I want to take like this weird, so like the story that I just read, the character of Jim, or the character, the man in the blue suit is actually a character of Shirley Jackson's. So um, in her first collection, The Lottery, which has her really famous story, The Lottery, which everybody, everybody has read, um, there's a whole collection of stories and that man appears throughout the stories, um, and he sort of serves as this figure who like leads women astray, and he's called Jim or James or James Harris or the Damon Lover, and he always has a blue suit. And in the story, The Tooth, he sort of like leads. He like this woman is like has a terrible dental pain and is like sent down to New York City by her husband on a bus to like get dental surgery, and she's like super fucked up from like drug, like from like all the painkillers and like the, all the agony like in her face. 
And then Jim like appear, appears to her and it's just sort of like, it's just, and then at some point she loses her identity. She like, this is like the, one of my favorite scenes in like all of literature, but she is in a bathroom with like a bunch of other women and she like leans down to wash her face. And when she looks up, she can't tell which face is her own, like which face in the mirror. Until she's like, she's like, well, I hope I'm not that one. She looks really pale and drawn and terrible. And then she touches her face. She's like, oh no, I am that one. Um, <laughs> It's like very, it's very upsetting. Um, but yeah, it's an, it's an amazing scene. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so like I read that collection and was thinking about this, this figure, this man, and I sort of loved the idea of like taking this, like just lifting this character right out of, just stealing him right from Shirley Jackson and like putting him in my own story and like imagining this sort of queer version of that story set in contemporary times using that character. Um, so yeah, so that sort of, that, that thing of like just taking and using and like, taking bits of everything and kind of making it into this new thing, I think also sort of exists in that, that sort of idea of liminality. That, yeah, that's, that's exactly <laughs> what I wanted to hear. <laughs> um, uh, and, I mean, just speaking, you know, I think it's, as you've mentioned already, um, it's impossible to sort of read this book, this collection, without having like the contemporary you know, um, female existence and, you know, in, and just marginalized people in general um, as, as a topic that um, it speaks to. And I, I was interested to, to question, um, is this a topic that, at, since you've written about this in this book, is it something that you want to continue, like, plumbing the depths of? Or do you, want, do you seek to maybe, like, reinvent each story or seek to, like, attack, a, a, like, the subject matter from a different angle? Or is it more like, oh yeah, I've got my route, like this is, <laughs> this is the way to go. Um, you know it's funny, because I, for years when I was working on the, Her Body and Other Parties, and I think this is probably a common thing for a lot of writers, I like couldn't imagine writing any other book, and I was like, maybe I just have one book in my body and that's it, and like I'll finish it and it'll be done, and then I'll have written the one book. I'll be like, uh, I almost just said Harper Lee, but she actually had a second book, but <laughs> after, well anyway, so, um, but you know what I mean, like I was like, maybe they'll just, I'll just have that one book and that'll be it. And because I couldn't like imagine any other, I couldn't imagine writing anything else. Like I was just like, you know, nothing book length. And, um, and then I remember writing, I mean, I wrote Blur and I wrote a couple other stories where I was like, these don't fit in her body and other parties. Like they didn't, like the book was still, like, it was, I could have theoretically like inserted them into the manuscript, but like they didn't fit with the other stories and they felt different somehow. Um, and also there's this weird thing that happens when you, <laughs> where like, so like the reason I didn't read from her body and other parties among other reasons is that I'm already a better writer than that book and I get stressed out reading that book because it's like who I was like two years ago. Um, and I'm like, I don't want to read that other thing that I wrote. <laughs> like, I only want to read new stuff that I've written that I'm, that I'm more excited about. Um, and so uh, I was like, boy, um, I just totally, again, I just totally spaced out on what I was saying. Um, oh, right, I couldn't imagine another book. And then I literally realized I had like the makings of another book that was like, in this case, asking questions about memory and just like other stuff that like isn't really what the first book is about. So no, I do feel like I actually like, I'm just sort of moving on to other things. And like, obviously like those things will probably come back even within those stories. Like this story has like elements of that first book, but there's like just new stuff um, that I'm interested in. And like, you know, every writer has their like weird obsessions and you're just like following some new, some new thing you want to read about all the time. And like, you know, and yeah, so it definitely, I feel like my focus has shifted a little bit since I wrote this book. Um, but not because I didn't like it, just because I'm like, ah, oh, I have like new things to think about now. Um, yeah. I, I 
I want to ask what those things are, but I know that's also like <laughs> territory to to like keep keep under wraps until like yeah. Come out <laughs> um, but thinking about that, um, maybe in terms thinking about again like genre, thinking about subject matter, and seeing as how you know we're connected to a, a house of God um, in the Highlands Church. Um, you know, in the Husband Stitch, your narrator asks. What magical thing could you want so badly they take you away from the known world for wanting it? So given the fact that magic and other liminal qualities do exist in your work, I'm curious as to how much you believe in the supernatural. <laughs> like, and, and you can take uh -huh. that in any direction you want, whether that's ghosts, aliens, ghost aliens. <laughs> oh, I want to read about ghost aliens. Yeah. Um, I don't believe in it at all. <laughs> of any kind. I was a super religious teenager, so I went through this phase of my life where my, my trying to like figure out, because you know when you're like a teenager and you're like, there's like all this stuff and it, you feel like you're like in the center and there's like all this stuff happening around your periphery and you're like, how do I make sense of like this, this world that I'm like sort of slowly entering into as an adult? And I was like, clearly the answer is there's God. And I was just really religious for like five years. And it really helped me through like a lot of weird stuff and also hurt me in a lot of ways, especially like in terms of my own sexuality where I was just like, guys, I don't think God hates gay people. And they're like, oh no, he definitely does. And I was like, mm, it doesn't seem right to me. I don't know, but I don't know why it doesn't seem right to me. Um, Cause I was not like out to myself. Um, so yeah, so it was like this very complicated relationship with the supernatural. Um, and I mean, I went through, I mean, and the, the thing that's really interesting, I think about Christianity in particular, is that like there was this, I don't know if anyone here ever read these books, but there were these books by this author um, about like demonic possession that were like really big in the 90s. Um, and it was really interesting because I would read the Bible and think to myself like, I mean, if you believe the Bible is true, like they talk about like spirits and angels and demons and like you, you would have to sort of, if you believe the Bible is true, like then those things theoretically exist, which is sort of like terrifying on its own, in its sort of its own way. Um, and I was just really into like, I was just really into that and thought about that a lot. And then it's, you know, at some point, like I stopped feeling that way and I stopped being religious and I, and I start, sort of start thinking about it in a little more of a, a little more of a holistic way where I sort of am like, if there is some sort of organizing deity or organizing intelligence in the universe, it has nothing to do with me. Like I have to just live my life in the way that I want to, or in the way that like I want to and that like makes me feel like I'm doing something right and good in the world. And like that's sort of my, that's what I have to do. Um, but I, so I, as a result, I do not believe in like ghosts or, or anything. I want to, if I could make anything true in this world, I shouldn't say that. There are a lot of things I would try, but like one of them would definitely be, I'd be like, I want ghosts and all kinds of that to be real because that would be so freaking cool. <laughs> um, I would really, really enjoy that. But yeah, I'm, I don't actually, like I don't actually believe in that, um, but I want to so badly. And I do feel like sometimes, and again, if you come tomorrow, like I'll also talking about the uncanny, like I do feel like there are times where like, I'll have a sense, I'll have about the like supernatural tingle where I'm just like, if I didn't know any better, if I didn't know this was my own brain like doing something to me right now, I would think that this something was, you know, that this was some kind of like supernatural thing, but it, yeah, but I, I don't. Um, but I want it to be real so bad. So I don't know if that says about me. <laughs> that, that reminds me of a, a quote from Sarah Manguso in her book 300 Arguments, oh, yeah, yeah. where she says, if I saw a ghost, I wouldn't believe in ghosts, but I would believe in that ghost. <laughs> <laughs> That is the 
Oh, I love that. The book is amazing. She has the other, another one in there I love, but she says, horror is terror that stay the night. Oh, so yes. good. Oh, that's a great book. You all should read that book. It's really good. 300 Arguments by Sarah Manguso. So good. Well, I think a, a story from the collection that a lot of people have, have heard talk about is especially heinous. And yes. <laughs> I, you know, I'm curious as to just like the writing process behind it, but also just you know, why, like, why Law and Order Special Victims Unit? What about that seemed as special storytelling fodder, like, that that was, like, rich to to pull from? Sure. So for those of you who haven't read it, um, Especially Heinous, which is a novella right in the middle of the book, is a novella composed of 272 episodes that are titled the same as the first 272 episodes of Law and Order SVU, um, for the first, which is the first 12 seasons worth. so there's a couple, there's sort of like a weird story to this. So when I was, so in 2009, 2009, before I went to grad school, I was living in California. I had just broken up with my boyfriend. I was like devastated and heartbroken. I moved into a new apartment and I got swine flu. Um, and I was living by myself and probably should have been in the hospital because I had a fever so high that I hallucinated and I was like, I lost like two days of my life. Like I just don't remember them. Um, but right before that happened, like right before I sent it into a hallucinatory fever state, Netflix had just introduced that feature where instead of having to click to the next episode, it would just play the next one automatically. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I like, you know, I was like feeling kind of sick. I called out of work and I remember like pulling up Netflix and thinking to myself, Law and Order SVU, like I've only ever seen that show, like everyone sees it, which is like you catch three quarters of an episode on TV randomly one day, and then you're like, huh, and then you sit down and watch the whole thing, and then you watch another episode. Like, that's how I'd always seen it. But I was like, I could just watch it from the beginning, like just watch them in order. And so I was like, that would be a good like, show to kind of have like under my belt, and then I just like, played the first episode. Two days later, I like, you know, woke up. I was just like in a row. I was like, I don't even know where, what day it is, like what happened, um, and it was still playing. Uh, <laughs> And I remember, like, nothing. I mean, if you asked me to, like, t- tell you what those episodes were about, I could not tell you. Like, I don't remember. But my theory is that this, like, weird novella, this, like, hellish Lynchian, like, demented thing that I wrote is because I, like, watched that show through, like, a fever dream. So that's my theory about, like, the emotional origins of that story. I didn't write it until many years later when I was, um, I was in grad school. And I think I was just reading an episode capsule description, like, online of, of an episode. I think I was like looking something up and I was looking at the episode capsule description. You know, there's this tiny little paragraph that just sort of like encapsulates the episode. And I was like, what a weird form. Like, like who writes those? And like, you know, how do you decide how to like summarize an entire episode of television or like a movie in like this little paragraph? And so then when I, and then I was like, you know, and I was like, you could just take a couple of words and change them and this would be like a weird poem or something. You know, it's so strange. And then I was like, huh. And so then I went online to like IMDb and I copied pasted like all of the episode descriptions for those episodes onto like a Word document. And when I started writing it, what I was doing was I was taking the existing descriptions and like altering them. So like the first like I think nine episodes of the story sort of resemble the plots of the actual episodes, but like kind of diverge in these really interesting ways. And then I realized that was too restrictive of a form. Like it wasn't giving me the kind of like space to stretch my legs that I wanted. But the titles were really good because for the first 12 seasons, they were all one word titles. It was like blood, death, girl. Like, it was just like really like silly. It was just this really like silly, weird, like dramatic one word titles. 
And I was like, oh, you could just use those as like prompts. So I just like deleted all the actual text of the episodes and I just had all these titles and then I just wrote the whole thing like from beginning to end. Um, and it just kept getting longer and longer because it's 272 episodes. So it just, I had never written anything that long before in my life. It was like, it was like, you know, 40 pages longer than any story I'd written beforehand, before that. Um, and yeah, and I just sort of, so yes, yeah, so that's, that's kind of what happened. And, you know, and once I started writing it, I realized that I also had a lot of things to say about the way we watch narratives of sexual violence. Because like Law and Order SVU is the only Law and Order that's still on the air. It's been on for almost 20 years, which is like unthinkable. Like, how is that even possible? And it's like, why is it the rape one is the only one that we culturally are really interested in, right? It has all this like interesting sort of cultural like zeitgeisty energy. And you know, there's always like the um, rip from the headlines where you're like, this is like reality like mashed together, put through a like fine mesh strainer and like turned into this like bizarre episode of this show. But I, I you know, and I, and I was like one, thinking about like the complicity of like watching a show like that. And I love that show. Like I, I even though it's gotten really bad, I still watch it. Um, it had a real sharp, I have a lot of thoughts about that, I won't even get into that, but, um, but yeah, but I like think about like even as I, like, I'm like, I'm a feminist and I'm like watching this show and like what does it mean that like I am so focused on this show and I think about it a lot and I really enjoy watching it, like it scratches some itch in my brain, what, what, what does that mean about like my own complicity in like narratives of sexual violence and like the sort of the hunger for those sorts of stories? Um, and actually, there's a really good essay collection that just came out called Dead Girls by Alice Bolin, which sort of talks about a lot of those tropes of like true crime and, and the dead girl um, and like detective stories. Uh, that's really, really smart and I highly recommend. Um, but it sort of unpacks a little bit of that, that idea. But yeah, so like a friend of mine once described, uh, especially Heinous, as like just like a Netflix, it's like a Netflix binge. Like it's like you're just, you can read the whole thing through and you've like read 12, episodes, 12 seasons of this show or like a fictional episodes of this show. Um, and in a way, I've sort of become complicit in the violence that like that story has. So yeah, so that's so it went from like this weird thing that happened to me when I was like much younger to like now I have like a really good answer for that. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, complicity. It's but it's true. I mean, it's true. But like, um, it sort of started off in this very weird like elemental way and has now sharpened to like a lot of thoughts that I have about again like narratives of sexual violence. I think one of the episodes that that I, I think perfect by itself um, is, it's not that I hate men, the woman says, I'm just terrified of them, and I'm okay with that fear. And that was just such a powerful moment to stand on its own. And I, you know, I think, you know, I, I want to ask just like large, larger questions maybe about, like, I think sexuality and sexual violence, and this is like a, as a topic in your work, and as mm -hmm. a topic that I like, think is worth writing about. Um, do you think that the, that liter literature and fiction in general, maybe like sex and sexuality, maybe um, all these things, do you think literature is meant to like subvert the cultural pressures of those in terms of, I, I think, um, I'm conflating like six questions right now. <laughs> um, but, I don't know, just this idea of, you've written a lot about, um, you know, I'll turn it back okay. to body and body image. Um, you've read about it in essays, like The Trash Youth Has Spoken, mm -hmm. which if, if you haven't read that essay in Guernica, it is amazing. Uh, the Trash Youth Has Spoken, and then you've also written about it in Eight Bites. Um, and those are honest and like affecting essays and stories. And do you think like that issue or other issues are underrepresented in fiction or in literature in general? 
Yes, I mean, I, I think that there, like, a lot of, like, the reason I write what I write is because it's like, I want to read that story, and if you want to read a kind of story and you don't see it, then you write it. Like, that's what you should do, right? And so, you know, for me, like, there were a lot of elements of that book that I really wanted. So, for example, I am really, I love, like, novels with, like, sexually explicit material, like, literary novels. I'm like, bring on the, like, pornographic sex scenes. I'm super into it. It's great. What I really hated was that all the ones I could find were all written by straight white dudes, old straight white dudes. And I was like, God damn it, can I just have one thing? Like, I just want this one thing. Um, and there were like exceptions, but like, I remember reading, not to, I know it's like not really, it's not, it's like kind of passe to like trash on Philip Roth, but like, I read, I read, I read, I tried to, <laughs> I tried to read a lot of his novels and I was just like, it's not that I'm not, they're not good or they're not interesting, but I was just like, I feel like, in all of these, the contempt for women's bodies is just like, it's like acid, just like coming off the page, and I just like can't, I can't, I don't want to read it, I just can't deal with it. Um, and so it was like really important to me to write like explicitly sexual sex scenes with women's bodies at the center, especially queer women, and like just having queer sex be this like normalized thing, normalized slash elevated to high art, because I'm like, it is, so why not? Um, so, yeah, that was like super important to me into sort of writing about that. And like with Eight Bites and Trash Team Has Spoken, which are respectively an essay and then a short story about fatness. Um, like I really wanted, so when I was writing Her Body and Other Parties, like I was just sort of like adding stories to the collection that they seemed to fit. So like when I would write a story that sort of dealt with like this sort of constellation of questions I was asking, that it, so it, I would add it to the collection and sort of the last story I wrote, I was like looking at it being like, you know, I don't have any of these stories in here about the fat body. And it's like, I'm a fat woman, I think about fat politics a lot, I'm like really interested in that. Um, so I was sort of thinking about, and I'd also always tried to write an essay, essays about fatness and had never succeeded. Like all the essays I had written had were just like bad and dumb and I hated them and I would write them and I'd be like, this is awful, I've never, you know, I could, this will never see the light of day and just never published it. Um, and so I got this idea, so, so the plot of, of um, Eight Bites is that this woman gets gastric bypass surgery um, and her daughter is like very angry with her. And so initially when I was writing it, I was the, the daughter was the protagonist, AKA me, um, who really angry at her mother for getting gastric bypass surgery, AKA my, my mom. And it was really boring because it was just like me just getting mad on the page. And I was just like, this is not interesting. This is just, so then I inverted it. I was like, I'm tell it from the mother's perspective and have the daughter be totally off stage. Like, you know, she just, she calls a bunch, but like you never see her. Um, and then I told the story about a woman who was haunted by her own body that she has rejected and turned away. And it was only, and it was like, as I was writing it, I was like asking myself questions like, why do these things bother me? Like, why do I feel so badly about all of this? And by writing the story, I like arrived at, my, at a thesis about my own thoughts, which is like really amazing. Cause like, I feel like beforehand I didn't have any like cohesive way of thinking about like, why do these things, yeah, why do these things bother me? But then, you know, I, I mean, I wrote the story and I like cried. It was like very emotional to write. And I was like crying and I was like, wow, I'm having like, this is bringing up some steps, like dredging the things up out of my body. This is super interesting. Um, and then once I had written that story, I, I sort of had this like more cohesive thought about fatness. And then I turned around and wrote an essay. And the essay just came out. It was like, and then I loved it. And I was like, oh my God, like it just, I needed to write a fictional story where I had sort of the devices of fiction available to me where I could just make stuff up and like invert perspectives and do whatever I wanted. And then I could, I suddenly then had this way of thinking about it and then I could turn around and like create 
like a piece of nonfiction about it. Um, so yeah, so, uh, and again, this is a thing that just was really important to me to, to, to write about because like I just didn't, I'd never read anything like that. Um, so, yeah. I think that's, that's like the best advice, just like write the thing that you want to be in the world. Like, it's true, and you know, I, I teach, and like a lot of times like students, they're like, I wanna write this one kind of story that I know, or they'll be like, I wanna write, oh, like, vamp well, not anymore, vampires have not been in for a long time, but they'll, like, they'll be like, you know, this supernatural creature is in, I'll just write that, and I'm like, no, 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 like, don't write, like, what you think, like, fits a trend, or, like, what thing, like, write the stuff that, like, burns you up inside, like, and I make them make lists for me of, like, what are the stories that only you can tell? Like, nobody else in this world can tell a story like that, because it's something you experience, something that you know in your heart to be true, and that's where the good stuff comes from, right? And so, yes, and then if you, like, if there's a space, if there's, like, this gap where, like, you're, like, I just want to read, like, this exact thing, and it's not there. It's, like, you have the power to create that. Like, that's, you know, that's amazing. Um, yeah, so that's just sort of my, that's my mantra. So I just, like, write into those spaces, and, like, it works out pretty well, so. It just pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I should also add that, like, then, like my favorite, my favorite part of doing events and doing readings is like young queer people coming up to me and being like, it's amazing to see myself represented in your work. And I'm like, yeah, thank you, that's great. It makes me so happy. I wish it, I mean, I want it to happen more. And like that, that to me is worth like all the, you know what I mean? Like it's just, that's why it's so important because it's like when you write what you've been looking for, other people were also looking for that thing. And like, then you get to like satisfy that for other people, so. Well, before we open it up to audience questions, with that in mind, I know that you have a future project that's in the works. So thinking about the things that you want to see in the world, yeah. I know that you're working on this. Um, well, I'll, I'll let you Yeah, so right now I'm working on a memoir. I've already sold it. It's coming out next year, assuming I finish it. Um, it's coming out next year. This is the thing they don't tell you is when you sell books, you have to finish them. Uh, it's very scary. Um, so I'm, I'm writing a memoir about domestic violence and same-sex relationships, and the reason I'm writing about it is because when I was looking for material about that topic, I could not find anything. I mean, there's, there's some writing about it. There's like a couple of essays. There's like a lot of like sort of nonfiction geared toward like therapists and psychologists and like, so, like sociological sort of breakdowns of this particular subject. But I was like looking for some, for this like a fiction book about this thing, and I, or, or fiction or not, or like, a, like an essay collection or, or a memoir, and I just couldn't find anything. And I was like, well, clearly uh, <laughs> there, again, that gap exists. Like, and I was like, you know, I think, and for a while I didn't feel like ready to write it, but I mean, now I'm working on it, and um, yeah. And so, but so again, like right, I just was like, I, need, I want this to be in the world, so like I might as well do it myself. Right. Yeah. No. Oh. Amazing. <laughs> so, if anyone has any questions for Carmen, we have a microphone that travels around. A couple in the center. My name is Irina. Hello. Hello. Um, so inventory is strangely what my favorite like short story in your book, and I just wanted to know what kind of headspace you're in when you're writing it um, about like a story about how intimacy can 
lead to the death of everyone? Like, what kind of headspace? <laughs> you make it sound so healthy when you say it that way. <laughs> um, yeah, so for those of you who have not read Inventory, it's, um, a, a story, it's the second story in the collection, and it is entirely composed of sex scenes, and it's a woman who is sort of taking lovers and just sort of living her life as a plague wipes out all of humanity. Um, <laughs> and I, that is, I've never heard anyone say it that way, and now I'm like worried about myself. I'm like, oh no, like was I that afraid of intimacy? Um, I hope not. Um, I actually, the, the way that I sort of, that story kind of came out a couple of ways, but first was a challenge where someone told me that they thought I, they, I, I didn't like sex writing, and I was like, I'm gonna write an entire story made of sex scenes. So that was the first thing that I did. And then I also was thinking a lot, so that story involves a lot of um, this thing that I really love in film, which is like foregrounding and backgrounding. So who, has anyone here ever seen Children of Men? So it's, an, it's one of my favorite movies in the world. It's, it's, incredi it's this incredible science fiction film from like 10 years ago-ish. Um, and I've watched that movie probably 20 times, and every time I watch it, there's so much detail happening in the background that's like not being focused on that you'll only, you, like, like commercials and like little sort of just like bits of art, and like you can, every time you watch that, bits of graffiti, and like every time you watch it, you just like get new stuff out of the background. And so I was thinking a lot about how, you know, so like right now, okay, we're sitting here in this room having this lovely conversation, it's great. Right, and it seems very, it's like sort of, you know, for me it's the highlight of my day, um, you know, hopefully it's the highlight of your day, like this is, you know, here we are. But like right now, at this very moment, elsewhere in Denver, elsewhere in the United States, elsewhere in the world, a lot of bad shit is happening, right? And like the way that you think about the relationship between like your daily life, the things that you're doing, and like the larger sort of parts of the world, it's just a matter of perspective, right? It's like, what do you focus on? Like where, like if you, if you, you, you could look at like the scenario and be like, how could they be sitting there talking about genre when like all this awful stuff is happening? Um, but it's like this is, you know, that's, we have to sort of um, create these like spaces in our lives because like otherwise you'd go totally crazy, right? Because you wouldn't be able to like, just like eat breakfast and be like, how could I eat breakfast if like people are, you know, like, like, and I feel like you can really get caught in that trap. So the reason that, so the, I was thinking in that story about like, what does it mean to have this like moment of like profound personal intimacy against a backdrop of loss? And so when I was writing that story, I read, um, or when I was, I should, I, before I had written that story, I had read, uh, and the band played on, which is this really incredible account of the sort of opening decades of the AIDS epidemic and sort of the ways in which people dropped the ball. <laughs> like, everybody, literally everyone dropped every ball that is possible to be dropped, which is why HIV and AIDS are so bad um, in the United States now. Um, but also it was just people like, living their lives, trying to like make things work while this thing was happening in the background. And that is just really, the dynamic that like, what these small moments with like larger things happening is like really to me. So that story for me was like an ex sort of playing around that, with that idea of like scale and like zooming in and zooming out. Um, and like in that case, like, you know, all the epidemic, like at no point in that story does like a scientific, scientist go like, dear God, like it's getting worse. Like, no, like, you know, it's not a disaster story. It's not about the like scientists trying to solve it or like the doc, you know, like it's not about that. But like that was happening somewhere. People were panicking and like all this large scale stuff was happening. But I just wanted to focus on this woman who's just like trying to come, you know. Um, cause like that's so real, right? And so, and like that's real, so that was really important to me. So like, yeah, I didn't remember your original question. Oh yeah, I hope I'm not afraid of intimacy. I don't think I am, but I, yeah, I do think, I do think that like, 
it's that example, like how do you like, how do you like function in the world when like so many bad things are happening all at the same time and how do you like sort of retain those little bits of your own like humanity and daily sanity while also like existing in where like bad things are happening. So I think that was more sort of what I was thinking about when I was working on that story. What? Oh, I think, sorry, I think, yeah, we do, I just can't hear very well without the microphone, sorry. Carmen Maria Machado. <laughs> How has your Latinx, Cubana heritage colored your writing? That's a great question, thank you. Um, so when I was a child, my grandfather, who is still alive but is not well, um, who I dedicated the book to, to Her Body and Other Parties, he had come to the United States when he was 18. And when I was growing up, our visits with him were sort of defined by these stories about his, his life and about sort of the way that he had sort of come to, you know, be married to my grandmother, who's Austrian, in <laughs> Washington, D.C., like, you know, sort of how his life had sort of unfolded. And it was, one of, it was, such, an, it was such a weird set of stories. So, like, he came to the United States, he went to, he went to of all places, Tennessee Tech in Cookville, Tennessee, because he wanted to be an engineer, and he'd heard that you could be an engineer if you went there. He spoke zero English. It took him 10 years to graduate because he was deported for being a communist. And then when he came back, <laughs> then they sent him to Korea to get his citizenship. Like, he fought for the United States um, to, to become an American citizen. And so then, and then 10 years after starting, he, he graduated and moved to DC and married my grandmother. And there's this thing, I mean, that I think is, is very common in like, Latinx and also like Cuban storytelling culture, where he would sort of play his life, he would sort of talk about his life as if it was like a, like a play, and he would just sort of be like, you know, um, I would have, this the thing would have happened to me, but it like this, this weird sort of fortuitous moment happened and I ended up going somewhere else and it just, you know, changed my whole life. And um, he also t would talk a lot about uh, it was funny, I actually went to Cuba for the first time like two years ago, and I remember, and, like, and I had never been there before, and I was like meeting all these really amazing Cuban people, and thinking a lot about like this sort of, um, this culture of like fixing, and like sort of like, like taking what you have, and like just, and you're like, well, I can't like buy a new one, so I'm just gonna like fix it and make it better, which is why my grandfather and my father are both engineers, so that's sort of, so I, I feel like I, I think a lot about that um, sort of way of, framing narrative and the, and the way in which he told stories to me and they were they were so funny and dark like he would tell this story about how he had this pet rooster as a child and then he didn't see it for a while and then one day they were eating soup and his mom was like this is your rooster <laughs> and he was just you know and like because they were like poor as hell they were you know it was like he was like Santa Clara in like 1940 or like whatever it was like just you know he's like he was like well this is just how it is and like there's this sort of sense of, especially I think, especially with Cuba, this sort of like, like darkness and lightness that sort of exists in the same space. And like, like I would meet, like I met this guy and he was like, you're from the United States? He was like, yeah, my, my brother went there, but I haven't heard from him in a while, but I bet the sharks had a really good meal. Um, he would just, they would, be, they would just make these like dark, dark jokes. And I would just bust out laughing. Or like my, uh, one of my, he's not my actual uncle, but like a relative of mine who I was thinking of was my uncle. Um, it was like, hey, hey, are you hungry? You want breakfast? And I'd be like, yeah. And he'd be like, you want a communist breakfast? I'd be like, sure. And he'd hand me a glass of water. 
Um, anybody like, do you want to do you want like a like a like a fuerte? Do you want like a strong breakfast? And he would, and then I was like, sure. And he like handed me a bone, just like a bone by itself. <laughs> um, so there's just this like sense of like, it's like accepting the darkness and accepting the humor of the darkness, which I think for some people is like very upsetting. People are like, how could you make a joke about that, right? Like, it's not funny, but like, it is funny. It's funny how fucked up it is. Um, and I feel like that sort of element of like the way my grandfather told stories and the way that I sort of, that, that like my family kind of thought about narrative really just shaped the way, which I think that's why I was like really into like Shell's Ever Seen and Roald Dahl, because I was like, that, that sensibility like really spoke to me even when I was a really small child, and I think it's because like, I sort of grew up like, marinating in these stories and, and this way of thinking about humor and, and storytelling and narrative. More questions? Someone down here. Also, you say my name beautifully, thank you so much. No one ever says it that nice. It's so, that's so lovely, thank you. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Can you speak a little bit about how you see sex and horror relating to each other? Yes, that is a, my, two of my favorite things to talk about, actually. So together, it's perfect. Um, I mean, I, I, so I'm really another, so I'm interested in like several subgenres of horror, two of which I've already mentioned, but another one that I'm really interested in is body horror. And this is partially because I'm a hypochondriac. <laughs> um, I'm afraid of illness and death at all times. I think I have a chronic disease or like a fatal disease at least once a week. Um, and so sex has always been very fraught for me personally because it comes like sort of loaded with a lot of like fear and anxiety surrounding the body and surrounding all kinds of things, right? Um, and I feel like, and then, and then actually also kind of speaking of inventory, like has the, there's sort of that element of like, like, and you know, we think of like sex and fear as very, very linked to each other, right? There's always that, or like sex and grief, like, you know, we, we sort of like these extremes to kind of exist in the same space. Um, so yeah, so for me, I feel like it's sort of like, I'm afraid, but I'm gonna push forward anyway. I'm gonna like push through this fear and try to like live my life in the way that I wanna live it. Um, and so I feel like a lot of my characters are doing that, which is just like my own subconscious, or my own like sort of consciousness sort of like fractured a little bit and just kind of expanded into like various characters. Um, yeah, and I mean, as a genre, like horror, especially horror film, like does not do great by sex, right? It's also that idea that like, if you have sex in a horror movie, you're like gonna die, like that's sort of a, and even, have any of you guys ever seen um, Cabin, in the uh, Cabin in the Woods, the Joss Whedon film? And which like, t which like does a lot of a great job of like breaking down a lot of horror film tropes. And yeah, like the first cup, like part of this like film is like this couple like having sex in the woods and they get like decapitated by like a, you know, crazy, I mean, it's, it's, so it's just like, um, sex is this like dangerous thing. I think it's just like an idea that exists in culture. And like, I don't know, I just like playing with that and like pushing through that. And also thinking about it in terms of my own psychology and my own, um, my own fears and anxieties. Hi, thanks for being here with us today. Um, you were introduced to us as a millennial, so this question might not mean diddly squat to you. Um, in the 20s, there was a book written by a woman named Radcliffe Hall called The Well of Loneliness. And it was described to me from my first coming out in the 70s as the lesbian Bible of the 20th century. <laughs> and we finally read it last year. And it was such a downer 
but I didn't understand how people could see it as a, you know, a model for how one should be in the world. I'm just wondering how you feel about, if you know about the book, how you feel about it, but secondly, how do you feel about happy endings versus uh, bad endings? Yeah, so I can't speak to that book particularly, which I have not read, but I do have a lot of thoughts about like queer narratives and happy endings and sad endings. So my wife is a young adult writer, and I have learned a lot about the history of like young adult and middle grade literature through her. And she often would talk to me about how these sort of like, like in, the, in the history of young adult fiction, there were these like, these like various movements that happened like within like trends. And so it was like, you know, um, the issue book where it's like the book about drugs, the book about whatever. And there was like that sort of series. And then for a while, whenever gay characters appeared in young adult literature, it would, it would, it would end, and it was similar to like a lot of like adult sort of books that had queer characters, which was like, it ended with either severe maiming so like, I'm not joking, like, like it was like people getting, usually it was a car accident. It was like the queers had to get maimed in, that was like part of it, or someone had to die. And that like, like because you couldn't end, like people couldn't imagine like ending a queer book with queer characters remaining queer, or someone would turn straight, or they'd be like, I'm not really gay. So that was like the three endings that you had available to you basically. Um, and this was true for like a lot of other, um, like even like sort of pulp, like sexy lesbian novels, right? Like they would often end with like, you know, it'd be like, They'd be like, oh, it was a terrible mistake. I should never have done that. Um, and, so, and, so it's, and so, yeah, so like there's this sort of idea, and it's like interesting because like, especially with like contemporary YA, for example, like there's like sort of this, this back and forth about like the coming out novel, for example. Some people are like, we don't need any more of those. We got so many of those. Like let's write just books about just like queer kids just like living their lives and doing whatever, which is great. But also we'll always need coming out novels also because kids are always coming out. We'll be coming out forever and ever. So like you need sort of both, right? Like you need stories where there's like, there is suffering, there is pushback, but you also need stories that's just like joy and just like being able to live your life, right? And both those things have their own function. Um, so for me, I was really interested when I was writing my book about like thinking about, like I was like, I don't want all these queer characters to be super fraught. Like, I mean, they're fraught in the sense that like, they're all women in the world and it sucks to be a woman in the world right now and always and always in the future and forever. So like, <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, and that's, that's, it's fraught, but like, I just wanted some of these characters to just be like, I'm gonna go bone my girlfriend, or like, I'm gonna go like, whatever, because like, why not? Because I'm just living my life and I want some joy. And like, that was really important to me too. So, um, so yeah, so there's like room, I think, for all those, all those stories. Like, I think it's okay to write stories about like, queer people suffering because like, queer people do suffer. And I think it's important to write stories where they experience joy because they do experience joy, and also we need stories where people experience joy. So like, all those things are really important to me. Um, yeah, I think that's all I have to say about that. But thank you, that's a great question. One, think, more, one more question. Oh, we have one more down here. Hi. Hello. One of the most unsettling parts of your book to me was the idea of women sacrificing silently or sacrificing without receiving anything back for their mm -hmm. sacrifice. So for example, women being sewn into dresses or women with ribbons who are constantly being harassed to take them off. Um, part of the question being, is this a space of writing that you felt needed to be filled? Or just speaking about that theme that kind of played through a couple of the stories. That's a great question. I mean, I'm, 
again, that's sort of that question of like the balance of you don't want to write about just pure suffering. Like I have read books where I've stopped reading them because I'm like, I literally can't take this anymore. Like it's so, there's so much suffering that I'm like in pain and I can't finish it. And I hope my book was not like that for anybody, but like, I mean, you know, whatever, it's your own. But um, so I, I, I did want, I didn't want all the stories to look like, about that one thing, but like that is a thing, like all, all books, or I guess all good books, I should say, are in some way like a reflection of like the author's preoccupations and obsessions and like what it is that kind of keeps, that's like filling their head. And when I was writing that book, I was thinking a lot about women's silence and women's minimization, minimization? Is that even a word? Minimizing? Well, anyway, women being minimized, women being sort of shrunk or like pulled down. And so in a lot of those stories, there's like these sort of, like for example, like in terms of the being shrunk, like there's two stories in the, where like women are disappearing. There's real women have bodies where they're just disappearing for no apparent reason. And then there's um, eight bites where a woman has caused herself to disappear. Like she's had this surgery and she's slowly kind of melting away. And in both of those cases, like one of those is about um, women disappearing themselves because they, they decided they have to do that, they should do that. And then the other one is about just like how it happens to them. And I think both those things are super important because that is, because like I think sometimes we forget to think about like internalized misogyny because which is just as bad. Like honestly, I truthfully I worry more about internalized misogyny than I do about like sort of those political forces on the outside. I mean like none of those aren't bad because they're really bad, but like if you get, because then you just become your own, you're, you, you're in your own jail, like you're in your own jail that you, I mean, it's not that your fault because like you've been trained to think that way, but like you can lock yourself up and, and throw away the key and never find that person again, right? I'm so cheery tonight, I'm sorry. Um, but, and so, and you know, it's funny, I've been thinking, I was just wrote, so for the memoir, I was, I'm writing also about silence and I was thinking about two Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales, which is one of which is The Little Mermaid, and the other one is um, The Wild Swans, which is the one where the girl, her brothers had turned into swans, and she said knit these like nettle shirts for them. And The Little Mermaid, in the original version of The Little Mermaid, her tongue is literally cut out of her head. So it's not like her voice is just like magically spirited into like a seashell. It's like literally the sea witch like cuts out her tongue, and it's gone forever. And then in um, The Wild Swan, she cannot speak while she's making the nettle shirts for seven years or else her, the spell will break and she, she, they will be able to turn back into, hu into human beings. So again, this idea of like a woman having like some speech taken from her and then a woman who makes herself silent. And again, like both those sort of elements are really interesting to me. Um, so yeah, so I feel like with all of those sort of ideas, like they're, I write with them because they're like on my mind and they're just like, and honestly half the time, I get a lot of questions from interviewers where they're like, you did this really amazing thing, like tell me about that. And I'm like, I have no memory of writing that and I could not tell you why I did that. Like, I, I blame my subconscious, like it's clearly what's on my mind and that's just like what, sh that's just what like, showed up in the story. So I don't think I was just sitting down and I was like, I've gotta write like this many stories, you know, it was more just sort of like, clearly this is what's on, in, my, in my head, it's like what's preoccupying me and it just shows up in my work. Um, but yeah, but I feel like for all of these themes, I am really interested in that sort of duality of like it being done to us and also us doing it to ourselves because we've been trained to do it or taught to do it or we think that it's better to do it somehow. Um, that's just really interesting to me, so yeah. Thank you. Applause, everyone.
Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors who make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Bonfi Stanton Foundation, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.